And our scripture reading for this evening is from Judges 6, 7, and 8. I'm not going to read the entire story of Gideon. That's way, way too long. But I want to read from each of the chapters some verses so that you have a little bit of an idea and you're reminded of the story of Gideon. And I would encourage you to, when you go home, to read these chapters uh, fully so that you get the picture. The interesting thing about Gideon is uh, when Pastor John put the uh, sermon overview out, when he came to this particular chapter and he wrote of Gideon, the worst of the judges. And I remember looking at that thinking, really? Uh, but it's interesting. We only tell part of the story about Gideon in Sunday school. And I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, as we go through this story. So would you turn with me in, in the scriptures to Judges chapter 6. And we'll read the first 16 verses which kind of sets up the story. And then we're going to go to the other chapters and read a little portion of that. So after Deborah and Barak, the land had peace for 40 years. And then in chapter 6, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clifts, clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planned their planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and didn't spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abrazite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, "The Lord is with you, mighty warrior." But sir, Gideon replied, "If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us?" Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord said to him, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. And then, of course, Gideon asked for a bunch of signs, 
and so forth. And then finally they get to the point in chapter 7. So we're going to read from chapter 7, the verses 1 through 8. Early in the morning, Zerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. Of Mora. The Lord said to, to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved me. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one should go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to get their mouth to their mouths. All the rest got on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give Midian into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So far from chapter 7, and then story is, of course, they surround the Midianites with the trumpets and they break, the, they break the, uh, the jars that they have and make lots of noise. And then Midian runs away and they defeat Midian even though they didn't do any fighting. And then if you go to chapter 8, the very end of the story, we're going to start reading at verse 22. And I'll summarize in the message some of the other things that are happening, but verse 22. After the victory and so forth took place, then the people of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. That was the custom of the Ishmaelites to, to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each man threw a ring from his plunder in, onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments wore by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. And Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. And all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years. Zerubbabel, son of Joash, went back home to live. He, sent, he had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb 
of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abrazites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berith as their god and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Gideon for all the good things he had done for them. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we open the Bible to Judges 6, 7, and 8, what can one say other than, here we go again? If you've been reading the book of Judges, you will know that these chapters concerning Gideon tell the story of the fifth of 12 cycles of the judges or deliverers of Israel. Deborah was the only one on the list who had any sort of judicial responsibilities. She was actually the only true judge, as it were, and from a law point of view. The others were a variety of people with a variety of occupations called by the Lord to deliver Israel from their oppression. So just to be reminded, the 12 cycles go like this. Covenant unfaithfulness, sin on Israel's part. God's judgment on that sin through a foreign oppressor, Israel's cry for help, much like we heard from Psalm 143, God's response to that cry by providing a deliverer of some sort, a time of peace, and then the whole cycle begins again, and it gets worse and worse as we go through the book of Judges. And so beginning in chapter 3, verse 7 through 11, we read that the people of Israel forgot about the true covenant God and worshipped idols. The king of Aram brought judgment. The people cried out to God. God raised up Othniel, the first of the judges, and the people had peace for 40 years. Judges 3, verse 12. Once again, Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, so God sent Eglon, king of Moab, to carry out the judgment. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. The Lord sent Ehud, and the land had peace for 80 years. Ehud was followed by Shamgar, whom we know very little about. He's only mentioned in one verse, chapter 3, verse 31. Then comes chapter 4, verse 1. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Jabin, king of the Canaanites, was now the tool used by the Lord to punish his people. When you hear these repetitions, what does it take for people to follow the Lord and for people to get the message? Of course, this was all over a couple of generations of people, and yet we'd think that they would learn. In some ways, it only goes to show how much we need a true Savior. Judges 4 through 5. Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And what follows is the story of Deborah, a mother in Israel, and Barak and Jael, who was handy with a tent peg, and the land had peace for 40 years. 
And this evening now we turn to Judges 6, 7, and 8, a much longer story, the story of Gideon. And as we open into Judges 6, we read, Again the people did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, what did they do that was so evil? Well, we read something about an altar to Baal or Baal. Almost, I remember my professors in seminary saying, you say, actually, you've got to say Baal. It's almost like you're spitting it out. It's so filthy to say that name. But to Baal and an Asherah pole right beside it. Baal or Baal means Lord or Master. And he was an important god in the Canaanite pantheon of gods. And he was particularly known as the god of fertility, the lord of rain, and dew. Interesting, as we think about how Gideon put out the fleece. Baal's counterpart in the fertility business was the goddess Asherah. She was often associated with trees, hence the Asherah poles. And it certainly appears that the people of Israel, rather than worship a god they, didn't, they could not see, adopted Baal and Asherah as gods to worship. So Israel, the bride of God, the covenant bride of God, was again unfaithful to her covenant partner. She committed adultery against the Lord by bringing offerings and seeking favors from Baal. But we know even from the Ten Commandments, that is something that the Lord said ought never to happen. No other gods, no idols, I'm a jealous God, and so forth. God has never tolerated idol worship. Well, as a result of this sin of adultery, God again punished the people. This time God sent the Midianites to rule over the land, which they did brutally for seven years. Midian was rich, Midian was powerful, and their occupation of the promised land was oppressive and severe. And no other story in the book of Judges tells us much time talking about how destroyed the land was because of Israel's sin. Now, knowing the books of Moses, which the religious leaders of Israel would have known, the Israelites could have expected this much destruction because it's precisely the sort of this total destruction the Lord had said would happen if they didn't live up to their covenant relationship. And if you open to Deuteronomy 28, you read all about that. The M.O. of the Midianites was always to literally destroy the entire infrastructure of the conquered nation. And every time there was a new crop planted, in they would come. They burned the fields. They tore down the houses. They tore down everything that had been built by the inhabitants of the land. And they didn't spare a living thing for Israel. All Israel's flocks and herds were destroyed. And the result was that the conquered people ended up being absolutely destitute, totally submissive to the enemy. In addition, the new Midianites and their flocks were so numerous, they literally covered the, the land. 
with their own livestock and with their own belongings. They were like that metaphorical plague of locusts covering the land and destroying everything as described in Joel chapter 1. So in order for the Israelites to survive, they literally had to flee to the hills and to the caves and to the crags and the rocks and stuff to save themselves. They weren't safe anywhere. The situation was desperate. And after a while, we read in Judges 6, verse 7, the people became so desperate that they called out on the Lord to save them. Now, whether they believed in the God of Israel or not, we're not told. But they knew the stories of their fathers and their mothers. And they knew stories about how God had acted in the past. And so that's the God they called out to because he may have more power than Baal and the Asherah. And God heard their cry for help and sent a prophet to help them, to remind them of what the Lord had done for Israel. But he also sent a prophet to convict them of their sin and just what that sin was, adultery because of their idolatry. Well, following the message from the prophet to the people, an angel of the Lord appeared to a man called Gideon who was threshing wheat in a wine press and therefore hidden from view of the Midianites. Like the rest of the people, Gideon was also hiding. And the angel said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The name Gideon comes from the root to hew down or to cut off. Gideon then means hewer of trees, if you will, or, or indeed mighty warrior, as the angel called him. But I don't think that Gideon felt much like a mighty warrior because he was hiding in that wine press and involved with the wheat and scared stiff of the Midianites. And then Gideon had some issues with, with what the angel said. If the Lord is with us, you can always hear him smirking if the Lord's with us. Then why is all this happening? What about the wonders of old? Get with it. The Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. And then what's really interesting is that the angel doesn't even answer that. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't talk about, yeah, but God has led his people throughout the ages and, and that kind of thing. None of that at all. He simply says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And then we get a repeat again. Then, like Moses, like Saul, like David, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, and like a number of other appointees, Gideon protested the Lord's decision after all, he said he was from the poorest household of the tribe of Manasseh. He was the youngest in his family. Incidentally, Manasseh, you may remember, Manasseh and Ephraim were the two sons of Joseph. But Ephraim received the greater blessing at the time of Jacob blessing his sons. And that comes to play a little bit later on in the story where, where actually Ephraim was here and Manasseh was here. Manasseh receives the honor through Gideon and then Ephraim challenges him on that and then Manasseh ends up killing people from Ephraim. We'll get to that in a moment. So Gideon wondered how, why the Lord would use someone like him 
someone in such a low position. And there must have been considerable fear on Gideon's part too. He knew the might of Midian. He knew that Israel was living in abject poverty and fear. And it's always interesting me to discover that the people in the Bible, even those we admire, even those whom we tend to put on a pedestal, are just very, very human. Filled with questions, filled with fears and the like. And it's always fascinating to discover or to note that God uses and chooses all sorts of people to carry out his work. He uses and chooses people whether they happen to be qualified or not. And he simply says, you, go. He uses broken vessels. We may sing, oh, use me, Lord, use even me, just as you will and when and where. And then when the Lord says, okay, go, then like Gideon, we sometimes tend to come up with excuses. But the angel of the Lord assured Gideon of something that I don't think he understood very quickly. And that was that the outcome of what he was called upon to do did not depend on the means by which the task would be carried out by Gideon. But the outcome of the task to which he was called depended upon the Lord. In addition, God said that he would be with his servant. And Gideon didn't know whether this was all for real. There were lots of gods in the land. There were lots of Baals and Asherah poles and so forth. And so he tested he wanted to know whether this was for real, and so he tested the Lord by preparing some food, which then the angel was consumed by fire right from the rock. That seemed to convince him, at least for a little while. And once the Lord showed Gideon that he was for real, Gideon then went out at night and he smashed the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole, which gave him the name Zerubbabel, or the one who contends with Baal. Or let Baal contend with him, which is what his dad had said to the people who wanted to kill him. They said, we want to kill, we want to kill Gideon because he's been destroying our altars. And then the dad kind of goes, well, yeah, but if Baal's for real, he can, he'll look after himself. Let Baal contend with him. Zerubbabel. Well, Gideon then enlisted and mobilized an army to fight with the Midianites. 32,000 men responded to Gideon's call. Now, while that may sound like quite an army, actually, in the face of the large armies of Midian, 32,000 men was just a drop in the bucket, so to speak. And when the 32,000 had gathered, Midian had an opportunity to assess the situation, or Gideon had an opportunity to assess the situation again. And when he saw that the Midianites clearly outclassed him and outnumbered him in every way, he wasn't so sure about this call and of his faith anymore. When we see our limited resources to challenge the injustices in our society, when we look at our re limited resources in a world of tremendous need, let's face it, sometimes we're not so sure about our faith anymore either. When there are seemingly more against us than for us, our faith can often take a beating. And so we read that Gideon turned to the Lord for yet another sign that the Lord would fight with him and give him the victory. Gideon, having been raised in a society that worshipped Baal, used what he knew to test God. So he put out the fleece. 
a test that would have fit a fertility god and a god of rain and dew. And the Lord gave him the signs that he asked for in the dry and the wet fleece, in the wet and the dry land. But God didn't stop there. He didn't say to Gideon, okay, I've given you these signs, and by the way, go with the 32,000. You're doing pretty well with that. So you're and my help, you 32,000 and me doing this together, we, we should be able to take care of the Midianites. No, the Lord did something that must have shocked Gideon and that must have really put his faith to the test. He taught Gideon and all the people of Israel something about where the, their true strength comes from. And he taught them that they and the plan of salvation were in the Lord's hands, not Gideon's hands. And the coming of the kingdom of heaven is not about numbers of people challenging the enemy. It's not about Israel's military abilities. It's not about human power. It's about the Lord and his plan. And that is something that we, for that matter, the church of all ages, ought never to forget either. You know the story. The Lord came to Gideon. He knew that the Midianites and their allies hopelessly outnumbered 32,000 men. And God said to him, you have too many for me to deliver Midian into their hands. Imagine, his army was small already, and now God wanted to reduce it even further. Of course, there's a good reason for this. You find the clue in verse 2 of chapter 7. You have too many for me to deliver Midian into your hands. Did you catch it? God was delivering Midian into the hands of Israel. It was not Israel's battle. Rather, the battle belonged to the Lord. The honor belonged to the Lord. And God wanted the army reduced in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength saved her. God wanted but a small group, a representative group of his people challenging Midian so that everyone would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was the power of God, not the power of man, that was responsible for the victory. You see, God was going to grant Israel the victory, but with 32,000 men fighting the battle, it would be too tempting, too easy to forget about God and say, we did a pretty good job here. God wanted to make sure that that would not happen. So all those with fear in their hearts were sent home. That's according to the rules for the military in Israel as recorded in Deuteronomy 20, verse 8. Fear-filled people in an army can lead to disastrous results. Fear is contagious and can lead to a defeat, as we notice later on in the story on the other side, as the Midianites start running for their lives filled with fear. In order to be an effective soldier in the army of the Lord, one must trust the commander of the army. We can learn from this. In order to be an effective soldier in the army of the Lord, we must trust our commander and obey his will, knowing and understanding that he's not going to let us down, despite sometimes overwhelming odds, but give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it must have been a shock to Gideon to see that 22,000 men went back home at once. And no doubt they were greatly relieved to be allowed to go back home in, in safety and not face those massive armies of Midian. 
and yet at the same time their returning home was a sign of lack of trust and faith in the Lord God of Israel. They were filled with fear, not really trusting the Lord would save them and protect them from their enemy. I wonder how many in Israel really knew the covenant God of Israel or if they figured he was just another God like the many of the gods all around. And I can't help but wonder when I read these stories how many of us would be found among the 22,000 who went home afraid of the consequences of taking up the battle against the enemy of the Lord and his kingdom. So now Gideon was left with 10,000 men. Had the Midianites been watching, they probably would have laughed at Israel, much like Gideon laughed when little David came out to challenge him. 10,000 men, a mouse coming out to fight a lion. But then again, Gideon was to have a surprise because God spoke and said, there are still too many. And Gideon must have wondered at times if the Lord wasn't carrying things a little bit too far. These men obviously all had courage and faith. But then the remaining men were given a test of their character. They were to bring, Gideon was to bring the men to water and watch how they drink. And how they would drink from the stream would determine who would be chosen to serve. Most of the men forgot about everything, fell on their knees or on their stomachs and lapped up the water. This very action proved them to be unfit for service because they were only concerned about themselves and quenching their thirst. As a result, these people could not be counted upon to serve the Lord with 100% concentration and dedication. They were liable to think about their own needs and desires during the battle. However, 300 stood out from the rest. They used their hands to scoop up the water to their mouths, all the while they remained on their feet, watchful and prepared for any emergency. And the Lord told Gideon, these 300 were the ones that he would use. The other 9,700 men were dismissed, not because they lacked courage or even a measure of faith. They lacked total commitment. God demands total commitment from those who he calls upon to serve. We may sing, I surrender all. We may sing, take my life and let it be. Do we? Really? Totally? From 32,000 to 10,000 to 300. That's a substantial difference. And now the Lord was satisfied, but Gideon wasn't so sure. Did Gideon... We're going to ask the question. I'm going to throw it out here. Did Gideon, raised in an idol-worshiping environment, really know who God was? The Lord gave him another sign through the telling of the dream on the part of one Midianite to another. And then with 300 men, Gideon went to challenge the vast hosts hosts of Midian. He knew for sure that he had to rely on the help and the strength of the Lord, for there was simply no way in which so few could make any sort of impact on so many. And therefore, in faith, Gideon went forth and faced the Midianites, and the fact that he did so gained him a spot among the heroes of faith as recorded in Hebrews 11. But they didn't do any fighting. They didn't do any fighting. They merely blew the trumpet, held up the torches, and shouted. God did the fighting. As the Midianites fled before the Lord, all Gideon and Israel Israel were called upon to do was to pursue an already defeated enemy. 
And so it was that the Lord carry out his purposes for Israel. The battle belonged to the Lord, and there was simply no way that Gideon or any of the Israelites could have taken any credit. Gideon won the victory only because God won the victory for him first. That's really the only way that we win the victory, too. The only way that we have eternal life, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who went on ahead of us and won the victory for us and then handed us the victory in his grace. It's all about the Lord, you see. The book of Judges is about the Lord. It's about God's actions and his faithfulness to the covenant that he made with Israel. Gideon, what a man. We learn these sorts of stories about people like Gideon in Sunday school. And they're always put forth to us as people that we need to emulate. We should become like Gideon. Be a Gideon. And some of us know about the Gideons, the Bible distribution ministry. They're named Gideons because, as they put it on their website, Gideon was a man who was willing to do exactly what God wanted him to do, regardless of his own judgment as to the plans or results. Humility, faith, and obedience were his great, were his great elements of character. This is the standard that the Gideons International is trying to establish in all of its members. Each man needs to be ready to do God's will at any time, at any place, and in any way that the Holy Spirit leads. And that may be good and true about Gideon, but then we rarely hear the rest of the story. We might want to emulate this Gideon that we just heard about, but the rest of the story is horrible. It's not a pretty one. And it shows how flawed a person Gideon was and how badly the people needed the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and true and only king. Gideon was a man, was but a man, and nowhere near being the one to redeem God's people. Pursuing the Midianite army across the Jordan brought up some conflicts between Gideon of Manasseh and the men of Ephraim <coughs> who were inhospitable and who were jealous of the victory that Gideon had won even though Gideon hadn't won it. Sibling rivalry on the go here. Elders of Sukkoth were disciplined and flogged with desert thorns and briars, no less, by Gideon. And then Gideon destroyed a tower in Succoth and killed all the men of the town. Gideon turned against his own people, people of Israel, his brother's people. A couple of the captured kings were not seen as enemies of the Lord. Gideon now made it very personal. They were his personal enemies because they killed a couple of his blood brothers. So he killed them. After his own young son would not do that, fact, that deed. And then he kept all the treasures of those two kings for himself. The people of Israel hadn't learned very much through all of this either. They got rid of the Midianites, but now they wanted Gideon to be their king. Not at all recognizing, of course, that Yahweh was their rightful king. So they didn't go to the Lord to ask what they should do next. They simply went to Gideon. And they said, become our king. And Gideon says, I'm not going to become your king, nor is my son 
The Lord, he is your king. And you can almost hear him say, whoever that is, that Lord that led me to win the battle. Because even while he did not want to become king of Israel, he said the correct things. And while he didn't want his sons to become the king, yet Gideon began to behave like all the kings of the Amorites and the kings of the Midianites and the kings of the nations all around. He had many wives. He had his harem. He fathered 70 sons. He took a foreign woman as a concubine who bore him a son named Abimelech. Get that. Abimelech means father is king. My father is king. So in some ways, Gideon began to see himself as a king despite the fact that he told the people about him that he didn't want to become a king. And like kings of the day had both political and religious powers, Gideon then asked each of the men of Israel for a part of the spoil they had taken from the Midianites, namely the golden earrings commonly worn by Midianites or Ishmaelites. <clears throat> then he made a priestly robe, an ephod, which would remind priests of worship, which would remind the people of priests and worship and so forth. And then out of those treasures, he established a cultic center, his home, to where people would come for worship. Who exactly they were worshiping is not clear, but wasn't the covenant God of Israel. All Israel, says chapter 8, verse 27, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. What a mess. What a mess. Gideon died at a good old age. While he lived, the land had peace for 40 years, but then all hell broke loose, it seems. For we read, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up a counter-god, Baal Berith. Lord, Baal means Lord, and Berith of the covenant. Lord of the covenant. Can you imagine? As opposed to Yahweh, true Lord of the covenant. And then Abimelech, son of Gideon, and son of a foreign unnamed concubine, killed 69 of Gideon's sons. Horrible. What a story. What a terrible story. We like the one about Gideon and the 300, and we tell that all the time in Sunday school. But there's so much more to the story, which is a not a happy part. And maybe we should start telling that part, too, because it points to people's sinfulness. The story of Gideon ends with the people of Israel ascribing the honor to be given to Yahweh, ascribing that honor to a fake God. How low can one get? Israel, as we go further and further through this book, we discover that Israel is sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into sin, and the book gets darker and darker. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is the testimony of Scripture. How desperately needed is the Lord Jesus? Well, desperately and through it all, we see that the Lord was indeed slow to anger and abounding in love. 
so much so that he sent his son. Jesus was to come. Jesus did come. And Jesus will come again. And one day the Lord will declare a final enough to all of his enemies. And when he does, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, what a day that will be. It actually can't come fast enough. Amen. Father in heaven, what an incredible story, this story of Gideon. We know the part where there was a great victory, and it's kind of a cool story to tell, but there's so much more to this story that speaks of sin and brokenness and fallenness and the need for a Savior. So, Lord, we pray that as we work through this book, we may be more and more living in anticipation of the day when you will come again and say, enough, and make all things new. Father, hold on to us. Walk with us amidst a world where there is so much brokenness and so much sin and cause our eyes to see and to focus upon you, the true Lord, the true covenant God, and the one who will make all things new in Christ Jesus. We give you thanks that the battle belongs to the Lord, and that by grace you give us the victory. To you be the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.